his karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams, thanks for everything, mom and dad, will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. Incidentally, so is my fever. <laughs> Kidding. Mel, I'm so cold but hot. Uh, but I'm gonna get you that budget. Just as soon as... Right. Mikey! Popcorn bowl! Press 1 to use Instacart and get your family's sick day essentials delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. Press 2 to keep working. Do not press 2. Just use Instacart. Brian. Dr. Ngozi Ezeke is president and CEO of the Sinai Hospital Systems, but she made a name for herself as director of Illinois' Department of Public Health during the coronavirus pandemic. She talked about her current mission, looked back on her old one, and more this past weekend at the City Club, and we'll give you a taste this weekend. Hello, I'm political editor Craig Delamore, and this is At Issue. The guest at this week's City Club of Chicago luncheon was Dr. Ngoze Ezeke, who a year ago stepped down as Illinois' health director to take a job as president and CEO of Sinai Chicago. She replaced Karen Teitelbaum, who has been a guest on this program. The Sinai Chicago hospital system includes Mount Sinai and Schwab Rehabilitation Hospitals on the west side and Holy Cross Hospital on the southwest side. They're part of the area's network of safety net hospitals. But during the pandemic, Illinoisans got to see Dr. Ezeke almost daily, giving the latest numbers of COVID infections and deaths and answering questions and sometimes pleading with the public to take precautions. So how's she doing? Pretty well from the sound of things. The City Club asked Brandis Friedman, an anchor of the nightly news on WTTW Channel 11, to sit down with the doctor to catch up. In this half hour, we're going to play you some excerpts of an excellent conversation. Brandis started the conversation pointing out that we are seeing a rise in the number of COVID cases. Should we be worried? There are some things that obviously are, are, should be top of mind. Um, variants are, are a thing and, you know, they will, the virus will continue to evolve because that's what viruses do. So that's not a, a possibility, that's the fact. What we don't know is, you know, what those variants will, will look like. Uh, hopefully they're getting milder and milder, but, you know, variants are a thing. Um, you know, my, my daughter, uh, Adora, stand up. My daughter is here. And um, uh, shameless plug. But I actually had a point to saying that. I, I actually was trying to say, because she's working this summer for a biotech company that's working uh, on additional COVID treatments. So that tells you that, you know, it's not gone. The fact that we're still going to need treatments means that people, you know, are continuing to be infected. Um, I think... You know, remembering that vaccinations are out there and that people obviously do much better with vaccinations than not. Um, I would throw out long COVID is something that we're all going to have to grapple with as, you know, millions of people have, have been infected and unfortunately a significant, a, a non-negligible portion of people have gone on to have long COVID or, or long haulers or whatever term is used. And so the medical community definitely has to wrap 
their hands around that, study that, research that, figure out some of the, the treatments that will be necessary to help people manage now what has become a chronic disease. Um, I, I absolutely have physicians who are telling me that people have now come into their offices needing to apply for disability that since that COVID illness, they have not been able to think straight to be able to maintain a job. So um, it is something that you know is with us, um, but you know, as, as we did in the throes of the heights of the pandemics, we will work together to make sure that we can mitigate some of these long lasting effects. You just touched on it, um, you know, like you're not following the numbers, you know, sort of minute to minute the way you were. Um, I'm kind of curious, you've been at Sinai for a year now after spending, you know, two to three years very deep in, like you said, the height of the pandemic. Um, I'm kind of curious about, you know, how much of your time you spend thinking about COVID, you know, how much that is affecting the people that you and the Sinai system are caring for and kind of, you know, how different your day to day is now, right? Like you've got other, other priorities. Yeah. So, um, we don't have as many COVID admissions, obviously. And, and in fact, the majority of people who do have COVID in the hospital, like maybe it was found out incidentally as opposed to them being brought in for that. Um, I think one of the biggest questions that came up since I've been at Sinai regarding COVID was when we could relax um, the universal masking. Uh, and so I was like, uh, let's get rid of the mask. And they were like, huh? Wait, <laughs> like, wait, huh? And they, I was like, well, you know, we do have to evolve to that, to that point. Um, we were sure to not be the first hospital system, but as soon as we saw some others, we're like, okay, we're next. <laughs> you know? So that was the big thing. But we're, we're fortunate that that does not make up the majority, um, any, anywhere near uh, the uh, majority of hospitalizations or even a significant number. But the fall and the change in weather as uh, temperatures drop, like that's the time that these um, viruses usually tend to have their uptick. And if we're going to learn anything from the previous um, upticks we've had, uh, in all the past years, that uptick in the fall. So again, it's hard to know exactly what's coming. There might be something that's coming, but we'll have to kind of wait and see. And then one thing that we always did at the state is, you know, I kept in contact not just with my state uh, state counterparts, but my p partners overseas. Like my friends in the UK um, were seeing things several months ahead of us. So looking to see what's going on there can also give us a little bit of a. Uh, an idea of what might be to come, what might come here. When Brandis Friedman handled questions from the business-oriented audience, one of them was whether there was anything that the doctor would do differently now than she did at the height of the pandemic. Her answer might surprise you. <laughs> can't get past that one. Can't, yeah, can't uh, <laughs> yeah, everything. Sure. I mean, I don't know. Like, I, you know. I've gone into restaurants. You know, I try to think that I'm low-key, especially when I change up my hair, then you you don't know who I am. Because a lot of people are like, you look familiar. And I'm like, mm, you know, I keep on. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I get that a lot, too. You know, yeah. right? And so then I can, I can try to book before they realize, you know. But, I've, you know, I've sat in restaurants, and then, you know, the, the owner will come up. I know who you are. And I'm like, oof. Yeah. It's like, you messed me up. <laughs> you know, and it's like, it, it was of course, so many restaurants didn't survive. Like, I, I get that. I think the premise I was starting with um, was that, you know, if you can try to minimize the loss of life at the front, um, then at least you're alive to try to fix the, the downstream effects, right? But if everybody is just gets infected and, and dies right off the front, 
there's there's nothing to fix. <laughs> there's nothing to fix. But that that I mean, either way is tough, right? I knew some people that were saying like all this attention on nursing homes, whatever, they've lived their life. And I'm like, oh, I, I, I guess that's one way. And people were like, I mean, who, you know, let the, let the, what they say, let the strong survive, let the weakest fall off. And you're just like, okay. I mean, like, there are different, there are different ways, right? There's so many ways to, to slice that. I think, you know, I, I tried to uh, listen a lot. I think, I think, you know, thinking about the restaurants specifically, which who I know really suffered. You know, if we could have, you know, right, if we could have given them money right at the outset to say, um, here, you know, as if there's unlimited pockets of money, right? But if we could just give out money and say, here, you know, we've seen that some of these bars, these crowded bars, have been super spreader. Uh, locations like we've got to we've got to get this under control while we're still you know trying to get you know get vaccines do this do that you know can you partner with this on this and you know maybe we can support you this way like maybe that could have had some more of the buy-in instead of you know people just kind of doing whatever they want because they felt like they were being attacked because they were in a business that you know was identified as a as a quote risky business but yeah, I, I second guess myself all the all the time, um, but I, I mean, obviously, I, I would like to say that I was doing the best that I could, assembling all the information that I had. In hindsight, being 2020, it's so easy for everyone to be like, "Yeah, that wasn't right. That wasn't right." And I'm like, "Yeah, I wish I had that you know, opportunity to see the future too," but. I, I don't. <laughs> You're listening to WBBM News Radio's At Issue. This week we are presenting excerpts from a conversation with former Illinois Health Director Dr. Ngoze Izike from this week's City Club of Chicago luncheon. Dr. Izike was interviewed by a former colleague of ours, anchor reporter Brandis Friedman of WTTW Channel 11. She asked Izike why she chose to leave government service and take the reins as CEO of the Sinai Chicago Hospital System. Many times I feel like the work that I get to do at Sinai, and I'm so privileged, uh, and I have many of the board members that actually put me in the role, thank you to the board of Sinai. Um, it's a continuation of the work that I've done since I decided that I wanted to be a doctor. Um, when I went into medicine, I knew I wanted to take care of people, and so you were thinking about you know, what field, and I just, I wanted to do, I wanted to be able to touch as many people as possible, uh, and so that I made the decision to do both internal medicine and pediatrics, so I could do from, you know, from just out of the womb to, to the other end, um, and, and really be able to focus on people that have often been um, neglected. So, you know, going to county and saying, like, that's, where you know they take care of everybody without uh, respect of you know what's you know doing the wallet biopsy and figuring out what kind of insurance you have before you decide what kind of services you know county didn't do any of that and Sinai which is just a mile and a half away is the exact same way um, even though it's a private it's it is absolutely taking everyone welcoming everyone in the doors regardless uh, of the ability to pay and that's a uh, a very intense mission that is hard to maintain uh, because these services do cost, but they have maintained that for 104 years, and so I'm so honored to be able to further that work. And so what you just mentioned, right, about you know people being able to come to Sinai and get care, right, despite all the dot, 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 who's your insurance, do you have insurance? And I was doing some research on the term social safety net hospital, right? Um, 
And I found an article that says, it's hard to define, right? Does it mean this? Does it mean that? And I guess I'm kind of wondering from you, you know, do you consider it a social safety net hospital or safety net hospital, essential hospital? And does it matter how we define it, right? Like, you do what you do, and would a definition help you do it better? Funding, understanding, support. I think it is important that we understand how Sinai is different from some of the other hospitals. I think if we don't understand what Sinai does, we can't really appreciate um, the depth and the complexity of what we are doing, how we are doing it, and what we need to be able to continue doing it. Um, I actually will tell you that on the federal level, they are looking for a special designation um, for hospitals like Sinai that are in an urban setting taking care of majority Medicaid. Uh, um, we take care of almost 70% Medicaid. Um, that is not, if anybody is going to open a hospital business, that is not what you're looking for. Um, but we are taking care of 70% Medicaid. Um, and then you would say, oh, well, the rest is private insurance. No, like maybe 5% is private insurance. So we welcome anyone here, because I'm sure you have <laughs> private insurance. Um, so we have Medicaid, uh, small amount of Medicare, and almost no private insurance. So um, really thinking about how we are really supposed to you know, keep the lights on and keep people paid and make the necessary upgrades on Medicaid reimbursement as opposed to, uh, you know, private insurance. Like, that's math that doesn't really work. And so it is important for everyone to understand that that's what we're doing. And so at the federal level, they're talking about a designation MA, uh, Metropolitan Anchor Hospitals, to describe hospitals like us rooted in the city, um, often in, in urban uh, very urban areas, uh, code for often, you know, uh, under-resourced communities where it would be largely Medicaid, and, and really think about how do we want to support these MAs, these essential hospitals, these safety net hospitals, so that the people who are served by these hospitals, who right now, the people who are served by Sinai have that 16 years loss of life compared to people who live here, right, where we're eating now. And so if we believe that that's a problem, I do, and I'm sure that many of you do, then what do we need to do for these MAs, these essential hospitals, these safety hospitals, to allow them to be able to support that population? And of course, we all know it's not just the healthcare. Um, and that's something that Sinai recognizes and has been recognizing for a long time, that there are so many pieces that are necessary to make sure that that 16-year loss of life between the communities that we serve and, and just coming here downtown, that we can do that in the healthcare space, in the job space, in the transportation space, in food food space, housing space, all working, working all of those pieces together to affect a better outcome for the residents uh, of the southwest and west sides of Chicago, just understanding that a, a rising tide lifts all boats. And Chicago is only as great as, um, you know, the areas that are the weakest, and, and we need to bring bring all groups up. You're listening to WBBM News Radio's At Issue. You're hearing excerpts from a conversation with former Illinois Health Director Dr. Ngozi Ezeke from this week's City Club of Chicago luncheon. Keeping the lights on and the health care continuing requires many hands, and Channel 11's Brandis Friedman asked about the kinds of partnerships that Sinai Chicago has developed. This work is so critical, it can't be done alone. It, it, it depends. It depends on partnerships. So there are 
endless numbers of partnerships. And, and, and my job, I feel like, is to identify and create more possibilities for those partnerships. Um, we need more people at the table. We need corporate sponsors to say, hey, I have a, a, a strong a presence in the city of Chicago. I'm invested in supporting Chicago, all of Chicago, all parts of Chicago, and I want to invest in helping you take care of the patients that you serve. We have great partnerships with foundations all, uh, all through the city that are very generous and kind. We have individual uh, sponsors and partnerships, uh, companies, corporations, um, other health systems. I'm really trying to increase the relationship between uh, Sinai and, and other hospital systems, especially you know some of the more resourced uh, hospital systems. I think they have an, uh, an opportunity to be able to really have even greater impact. Uh, when we were talking about health equity, Look to me, <laughs> look right here, look no further than Sinai. You know, 100%, I mean, 99, 98, 98% of our patients uh, are uh, Latino, African American, and, and really have some of the worst outcomes. So if we really want to make a dent, um, supporting us is a, is a great way to, to get there. So we are open for partnerships. <laughs> <laughs> open, for, uh, open for partnerships. There's one audience question that fits in right here. Um, someone asks, can you touch on the importance of partnerships, which we just, just discussed, not just linkage agreements with local smaller businesses to move your agenda forward. So I'm curious then about, um, obviously a lot of your partnerships, like you said, with foundations, I imagine a lot of community-based organizations, um, but you know, are there businesses and what is their role? No, of course, we are we're intentional about trying to support businesses in the community. In fact, we are part of creating, uh, you know, very, um, very creative, business mixed with civic organizations, with the city, with, uh, with the city, with the philanthropic organizations, with private business, where we've created a Ogden Commons uh, building across the street from Sinai, which has medical use. We have clinics in there. We have dialysis. Um, we also have um, a space for a restaurant to encourage uh, a business uh, from the community to come and take up shop there. There's a there's a bank. Um, there's a there's a coffee shop, uh, and then the the next phase, which they've already broken ground on, is to create 92 units of affordable housing. Uh, so really understanding that these are all the things that are necessary, and you know we have other projects that are coming right behind to bring a grocery store. I mean, I know many of us are in places where you can't imagine not having a grocery. You know, I could go to Trader Joe's or, or Mariano's or like Whole Foods, like all within a mile and a half. And to think of neighborhoods not having a single grocery store, like that is a real reality in many of the communities. And so being able to think about how we're going to create the partnerships to make that happen, that's something that we spend a lot of time on as well. So I mentioned the community health workers um, and the Sinai Urban Health Institute. Uh, Suey? Suey. Suey. <laughs> Which is just cute to say. I lived in Arkansas for a while as well, so some of you know what Suey also. Um, so <laughs> thank you. You get it. Um, so I want to talk about like the community health workers, the work that they do, but also um, how they impact health outcomes for the people you serve. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know if everyone knows what CHWs, if you want to use another term CHW. to show your I had to look it up. <laughs> community health workers, but 
Um, there are very few things that are a win-win-win-win. Um, and community health workers are... There you go. Win-win. <laughs> Are, are, are one such entity. Community health workers are individuals who, in most cases, don't have a college degree. They're high school graduates who get a, a, um, an intensified uh, education and training uh, on being a support in the community. Sometimes there could be a focus on asthma, uh, or it could be something related to, to uh, pregnancy and, and the you know, perinatal period. Uh, and those individuals get trained. I'll tell you that at SUI at, at Sinai is one of the, you know, architects in terms of creating curriculums for community health workers, being able to train community health workers, and then being able to do the research to prove that they actually uh, cre create big ad. And so community health workers, for instance, at Sinai, and this is something that we've been doing for decades now, um, community health workers have been proven that they were sent to follow up on patients after they were discharged with an asthma hospitalization. So you had asthma. Asthma does literally kill people. Um, you survived. You were discharged home. Do you have... Um, the information and the tools that you need to ensure that you don't bounce back and get readmitted. And so these community health workers that were specifically trained in asthma follow up in the home. There's the community part of the community health workers. They are from the community and they're going into the homes of people in the community after discharge to check on them and say, hey, did, did you get all the inhalers that you were supposed to have? Did you get the, the prednisone? Did you get this medicine? That Do you understand what you're supposed to be doing with that? Do you have a number to call? When is your follow-up appointment? It hasn't been made. Let's make your follow-up appointment so we can make sure that it, like those, that little touch, that warm touch, that follow-up in the home with somebody from the community resulted in a 40% decrease in asthma readmissions, right? And so they have that kind of data for all the um, interventions that these uh, community health workers are doing. And so the other side of it is that this community health worker um, now has a very valuable skill as part of the health team. They are literally making a difference in the health of their community. They are gainfully employed with a livable wage with you know, benefits of their own that they can now take care of their family and have insurance for their family. And so I always think of that as just this you know, tremendous win. Uh, and so we're trying to uh, really promote that and also get insurances to be the ones to pay for these services because this is an important part of the health milieu. What are, what are some of the challenges with running a program like that? Because um, in my head, I'm like, is it wages? You mentioned benefits. Yeah. The job description I read can kind of be confusing because different communities and, and organizations may describe it differently. Um, training and career development and advancement. Funding. Go on. <laughs> Where <laughs> are that, they? All of that. All of that. No, no. I mean, those, I mean, you know rewind you know a year and a half and we were talking about that at the state like can we create a certification program so that everyone who's going to call themselves that has gotten this this set of pieces of education and that you know is there a test or something so that we can standardize this and thinking that that would be the first step 
you know, having some kind of accreditation or certification program that from there you could move on to getting actual reimbursement um, from, from insurance. So there's a lot of work to be done on that. In the meantime, whether we have that or not, or the reimbursement, this is an important, uh, this is an important adjunct, uh, very critical part of the healthcare team. And w given what we went through with um, the nursing shortage, when you know so many people either left the workforce um, a as a nurse from really the trauma they were facing dealing with COVID, uh, versus people who left to be traveling nurses, you know there was a significant um, shortage of of clinicians, of, of nurses. And so those community health workers actually, you know, they're not nurses, but they were able to help uh, and really extend the, the staff that we did have with some of their support because we're starting to bring them in the hospitals to help them, uh, help them with, you know, patients in the hospitals uh, as well as, you know, in the community. So I think there's just a, I would say limitless uh, possibilities and opportunities with this, but we do need the support, the funding to be able to make this sustainable. As long as we're on it, because I had that question, what would a more sustainable funding model look like? For safety nets, for community health workers, obviously like we need we need them to, to get the be able to reimburse for their services like other um, members of the medical health team. Um, right. In the absence of that, you know, safety nets are bearing a big brunt because we are using them and, and we are, you know, we are covering them um, without, again, without having really the extra resources to cover this. I, I mean, I think we're all friends here, right? You know, we can talk. It's just us. It's just us girls, right? I mean, I think the, the real question is, you know, when you're thinking about safety nets or MAWs or essential hospitals, um, do we really think that everybody deserves adequate health care? Yes. I mean, that's the question that's at stake. Yes. And I'm not sure that the answer is yes. We don't act like the answer is yes. We have a tiered system of, of health care based on who you are, what you have, uh, where you went, what, you know, do you have education, do you have money in your pocket, what kind of job you have. We don't actually think that everybody gets the same. Like, you know, we are literally you know, often fighting to say, like, look, I, I know this is not covered, you know, by this insurance, but it is, it is covered by someone who has this insurance. But this is the same disease whether you're poor or you're rich, right? And so treating it differently, not having access to the same medicines, not having access to whether it's continuous glucose monitoring or whether it's this medicine or that medicine, that tells me that we don't actually think that everybody deserves the same care even if it's for this exact same illness. And, and you know, let you in on a secret, these people who have traditionally not had access to all the things that someone over here has, their, their conditions have gotten worse and, and more severe. So if anything, they need more, and, and instead they're on the, on, the, on the side of getting less. And so that's really what I feel is my job to raise raise visibility to that issue and really get that, um, that communion of people that uh, believe that and say that we're gonna, we're gonna do something about this so that we can stop just talking but be about something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
You're listening to WBBM News Radio's At Issue. This week we're presenting excerpts from a conversation with former Illinois Health Director Dr. Ngozi Ezeke from this week's City Club of Chicago luncheon. Dr. Ezeke was interviewed by Brandis Friedman of WTTW Channel 11, and she wrapped up the conversation by asking what we all can do to help end the disparity in health care that still sees a correlation between life expectancy and zip codes. And safety net hospitals are still struggling to keep serving underserved populations. We're 77 communities in, in Chicago. We know the ones that have more issues with housing insecurity, food insecurity, you know, have transportation issues, uh, have a higher rate of people re-entering from incarceration. So we know the communities that need help. What, I mean, I think people have to ask themselves, what is my niche that I can insert my, myself, my organization, my corporation, my dollars into to make, to make a difference. Uh, I'm, I'm not here to plug Sinai, but yes, obviously Sinai has a lot of opportunities for people to support that work because Sinai doesn't just do healthcare. Like I said, we, we're working with the community health workers. We are in the community already working on all these different pieces, understanding that healthcare is not just uh, the result of what happens with the doctor or the nurse or, uh, or inside the walls of the clinic or the hospital. That was a conversation with Sinai Chicago Hospital System President and CEO Dr. Ngozi Ezeke. She formerly headed the Illinois Department of Public Health. Dr. Ezeke was interviewed by our former colleague, anchor reporter Brandis Friedman of WTTW Channel 11. Thanks to the City Club of Chicago, which put on the luncheon this week. To our listeners, if you'd like a copy of this program or just to hear it again, please visit our website, wbbmnewsradio.com. There's a link on the homepage, and you can also find our podcasts on odyssey.com. We'll be back next week with another edition of At Issue, and I hope you'll be listening. Until then, I'm Craig Delamore, News Radio 1059 WBBM. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details.